1: We tend to favor narcissists. If you look at who becomes a CEO and you compare multiple candidates, the more narcissistic candidate usually gets the job. In elections, too, the relatively higher score on narcissism in an election is more likely to get the votes.
0: That's Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist and star professor at the Wharton School. I talk with him about the qualities of a leader, the pitfalls of charisma, and what makes an organization run well, whether that organization is a company, a U.S. attorney's office, Or, say, a White House? That's coming up, plus your questions. This is Stay Tuned. Stay Tuned with Preet is supported by ZipRecruiter. Hiring? Every business needs great people, and a better way to find them. Something better than posting a job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. Right now, my listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com Preet. All right, it's time for your questions. Let's go to the phones. Hi, Preet. My name is Betsy, and I'm in Santa Fe. Love the show. I'm wondering, what is it exactly that um, solidifies A situation in which an attorney is talking to another person as an attorney as opposed to as a fixer or as a friend or as an attorney who is also a friend. Um, Is it a contract? What what defines that situation? Okay, thanks. Thanks, Betsy. That's a good question and one that a lot of people have been asking lately uh, with the raid on Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, in recent days. So it's actually fairly simple, but also maybe complicated. The most uh, simple way for someone to infer that there's an attorney-client relationship is standard operating procedure, where a client walks into an attorney's office and says, I would like to hire you as my lawyer. Uh, The lawyer says, give me a retainer. They sign an agreement that is very explicit as to what the duties of the lawyer are, uh, how much the billing rate will be per hour, what happens when the retainer runs out. And so in the classic circumstance where that happens... No one has to guess about whether or not there was an attorney-client relationship. It's all laid out. It's all very explicit, and everyone gets it. So that's the prototypical way that you know that there's a clear attorney-client relationship. Uh, But the law doesn't require something so formal. One need not be paid. People can offer legal services pro bono. One need not even ultimately be retained. But the essential element to determine that there exists an attorney-client relationship and the privilege is whether or not someone is providing legal advice. So for example, if you have a company and you retain the services of a lawyer and you ask the lawyer whether or not it would be illegal to engage in this or that conduct, that's clearly the provision of legal advice. If on the other hand, you ask the lawyer, you know, that person's advice on what kind of car you should buy or, you know, where you think you might open a new business and what part of town, that's a business decision. That's a business question. And unless it's also... Connected to some provision of legal advice and doesn't fall within the attorney-client privilege. Now, it's very hard to separate sometimes in a conversation what's legal advice versus what's business advice. And so generally speaking, you know, conversations like that and correspondence between lawyers and their clients will largely be viewed as as privileged when the relationship is clear. What's muddying some of this, I believe, and maybe the reason you're asking, is this whole business with respect to Sean Hannity. I will admit that the Sean Hannity situation seems kind of peculiar. Uh, to refresh everyone's recollection, in court the other day, prosecutors from my former office went into court and were seeking to make an argument about whether or not they should be able to look at the attorney client information through the use of a filter team to decide what information should be looked at and what information should not be looked at. And Judge Wood, who's a very long serving and an excellent judge, is still trying to figure out what to do about the situation. And in order to assess the claim of attorney-client privilege that Michael Cohen is making, the court wanted to know, well, who are the other clients? And Michael Cohen, through his counsel, claimed that he had three clients in the prior year. One was Donald Trump. Another was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Broidy. And then a third who they said in court preferred to remain anonymous. And then, as everyone knows by now, with some fanfare, uh, the judge demanded to know who that third client was in open court. And by the way, I think this is important. Some people have been speculating about whether or not it was proper to force the disclosure of the third client. My understanding is the prosecutors were not the ones demanding that it be disclosed publicly. The judge was perfectly prepared, it seems, to receive that in what's called in-camera or on a slip of paper so it wouldn't be revealed publicly. But then lawyers for news organizations stood up and made an argument for there being a public interest in knowing who the third client was. I don't have a view on whether or not that was right or wrong, but uh, I think it's notable that it was not the government that was seeking public disclosure of who the client was, they did need to know uh, whether it was public or not, who was claiming to be a client so they could think about how to deal with the take from the search. And then, of course, it was revealed that the client was Sean Hannity. And what's peculiar about that is Sean Hannity, the noted commentator on Fox News, made a fuss about essentially saying that I'm not a client. This week, Sean Hannity said this, quote, I've known Michael a long, long time, Let me be very clear to the media. Michael never represented me in any matter. I never retained him in the traditional sense as retaining a lawyer. I never received an invoice from Michael. I never paid legal fees to Michael. But I have occasionally had brief discussions with him about legal questions about which I wanted his input and perspective. So that's kind of muddled. As I said, attorney-client privilege doesn't require payment or an invoice or formal retention. But the reason I say it's muddled and odd is on the one hand, Sean Hannity, who is the purported client, Who actually owns the privilege is essentially saying, I'm not a client, and then you know, we didn't have an attorney client relationship, although he's very sort of peculiar in his language, and so sort of leads open the possibility that he was a client. But to the extent he's saying he's not a client, that's weird because in court, with a million reporters present and the whole world watching, the lawyer Michael Cohen took the position that Sean Hannity was his client. It is rare, particularly in a high profile situation to see such a huge gulf and disconnect between what the lawyer thought the relationship was and what the client thought the relationship was. And it may be that Sean Hannity, unsurprisingly, has other interests uh, in how he presents himself and whether or not it was a conflict of interest for him to be, you know, railing against the raid done on Michael Cohen's home and office while he was essentially a client of the person. So I, I don't know what people's motivations are. And I think a lot of this has become muddled because people have different agendas and perspectives on this. This next question comes via email from Pete Alcorn. Hi, Preet. I wonder if you can tell us what precedents have been set by the courts around the presidential pardon. For example, have the courts ever placed any limits around pardoning cronies like Cohen, by whom I I think you mean Michael Cohen? Well, it's a good question. And a lot of discussion about this because the prospect of a potential pardon looms large. There have been pardons this president, President Trump, has issued, including with respect to Joe Arpaio, the sheriff in Arizona, and then most recently, Scooter Libby, who was prosecuted by Special Counsel Patrick Fitzgerald. So essentially, there are there are no limits that the courts have imposed on whom the president can pardon with respect to federal crimes. Obviously, as the people know by now, the president under the Constitution is not permitted and does not have the authority to pardon people for state crimes. But for federal crimes, he basically has unlimited ability. And because that's written right into the Constitution. I'm not aware of any court who has set any limit on whether or not the president can pardon someone who's either uh, unknown to him, like Scooter Libby, uh, or very close to him, like a relative associate or personal lawyer. It may be the case that if there's a lot of abuse of the power of pardon by this president or someone else, that people will want to revisit the idea in the Constitution. But that's a that's a very heavy lift and very rarely done and hard to do. But don't bet against it if this president begins to pardon you know every single person who is in harm's way because he wants them either not to testify against him uh, or because he just wants to protect people who are as you put it his cronies let me comment on one thing with respect to the pardoning of of Scooter Libby it's a it's a peculiar pardon as the other pardons have been as well and they're peculiar in a couple of ways as i think i mentioned on the show before even though the president has absolute power under the constitution to pardon there does exist an institutional mechanism for making sure that pardons are issued you know, with some amount of fairness and with some amount of guidance and with some amount of knowledge on the part of the president. There's, in fact, someone called a pardon attorney, and that office was created some years ago, so that in connection with someone seeking a pardon, lots of information gets gathered. The underlying prosecutors are consulted and asked for their view on whether a pardon should be issued. Often, if not always, the judge, who may have sentenced the person seeking the pardon, gets consulted and expresses a viewpoint. During my time as U.S. Attorney, we considered and weighed in on many, many, many uh, requests for pardons and for commutations. We took it very seriously. We sat around and deliberated. We consulted the files. We pulled them all back up from records, decided whether or not we would take no position, whether we would oppose or whether we would support. And depending on the circumstances, we did all three of those. But there was a process by which people gathered information and deliberated carefully. And then a recommendation was made to the White House. And then, of course, the president could reject the recommendation or not, but at least there was a process and there was an institutional way of considering these things. This president, as far as I can tell, has gone outside that process in every instance. And including with respect to Scooter Libby, who, by the way, used to work for the Bush White House and sought a pardon. And even though he worked for President George W. Bush, you know, by way of working for Dick Cheney, the vice president, George W. Bush did not pardon him. He only commuted his sentence. So he's already once gotten the benefit of this extraordinary relief that most people in America never see and can never get. Uh, But he got that. And now, some years later, on a random Friday afternoon, for no reason that is discernible, other than to send a message, perhaps, to other people who might be in harm's way, uh, based on the conduct of the special counsel, President Trump, who openly admits that he doesn't really know Scooter Libby, and I'm betting doesn't know a lot about the underlying case, decided to pardon him. He had the right to do it. He had the authority to do it, but it's a, it's way, way sketchy. Hi, Preet. This is Perry from New Jersey. I was wondering if you could help us understand this McCabe thing with the Inspector General's report that came out that's being characterized as scathing, uh, particularly in the way that this man was fired shortly before his uh, pension vested. seems a little hinky, as they say. Um, and yet um, the inspector general is not thought to have been biased and uh, it's difficult for, I think, someone like me and the layman to uh, understand uh, exactly what's going on and to view it in an unbiased way and not just assume the worst about Trump and his administration. Thank you. I, you have a great podcast. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Perry, from New Jersey. That's a, that's a great question. And you're confused because the whole issue is confusing. I'm confused myself. To remind folks, the inspector general put out a report with respect to Andy McCabe, who, as I've said, I think before, is a friend of mine. I worked with him on cases when we were both in New York as line prosecutor and line FBI agent on Russian organized crime cases. So he was the deputy director of the FBI and reported directly to James Comey. And there was a question of whether or not he was fully candid with investigators about revealing information to a reporter, Devlin Barrett. And the whole issue around Andy McCabe's conduct and his firing appears to be whether or not when asked questions about this leak by internal investigators, the question is, was Andy McCabe candid? And obviously the standard uh, for people in the FBI has to be absolute candor. So two things can be true simultaneously. I've read the inspector general's report. I think generally speaking, folks at the inspector general's office are nonpartisan career professionals and take their work seriously and back up their conclusions with some amount of evidence. I'm not going to get into the underlying details of whether or not, you know, they're correct about Andrew McCabe. Uh, He has a very good lawyer. I know Andrew McCabe to be a good person and they dispute the findings. But I will say, and it pains me to say it, you know, the conclusions have to be taken seriously. And looks to be, if you believe the conclusions, and I don't have any reason to dispute the conclusions, and maybe we'll hear more from Andy McCabe's lawyer about this, that he was not candid. And the report goes on for some length about his not being candid, not only to investigators, but they concluded further that Andy McCabe was not candid with Jim Comey. Um, I hope it's not true, and we'll see what the lawyers say, but I have to respect the report, on the other hand. and, and, And it may be that that conduct was worthy of firing, on the other hand, you are right to be concerned about and you know even upset about, like I am, the nature and timing of his firing that looked to be a rush to just get ahead of his full vesting of his pension in a way that was incredibly vindictive, publicly humiliating, and not fair to a lifetime public servant. I'm not saying that lack of candor to investigators within the department is not serious. It's a really serious thing. And if it was serious enough to, to call for someone's termination then so be it if that's how other people have been treated but to do it in the way that the president was personally calling for which i've never seen before in my life of somebody who has given his whole career to protecting the public and i know that from personal experience with him that seems wrong and i think there's more yet to come out on that so we'll have to see
1: Hi, Preet. This is Rob from Denver. Um, I, I was hoping that you could uh, give me just a little bit more clarity on the question of whether or not a president, uh, can, a sitting president, can be served an in indictment.
0: If you could explain whether or not there's a distinction made between crimes that were that may or may not have been committed uh, during a sitting president's presidency, or crimes that may or may not have been committed uh, prior to uh, the president uh, uh, ascending to office. Uh, thanks for your question, Rob. Yeah, there continues to be, you know, some confusion about whether the president can or cannot be indicted. As I've said many times on the show, the prevailing legal consensus based on an opinion uh, written by the Office of Legal Counsel within the Department of Justice is that a sitting president cannot be indicted. And lots of people like to make arguments that have some credibility to them that a sitting president can be indicted for various reasons. But the prevailing view and the written opinion of the Justice Department says you can't. It does not make a distinction between whether or not the misconduct occurred while president or the misconduct occurred before the person became president. The lack of ability to indict the president derives completely from his status as the president. So once the president leaves office, if there were crimes committed before he was in office and the statute of limitations has not run, then certainly he's a private citizen at that point and he can be prosecuted without any constitutional issue. A separate question arises... I think if you're talking about conduct that occurred while the person like Donald Trump was president, and it depends on the kind of conduct. If he engaged in conduct that was part of his official duties and someone wanted to interpret that as uh, unlawful, so for example, you know, hypothetically, uh, directing people to engage in uh, harsh interrogation techniques that maybe crossed the line into torture, then there are questions of whether or not as a, a person who is exercising his official duties, does he have immunity But let me repeat one qualification on the issue of whether the president can be prosecuted that I mentioned before on the show, but maybe it's worth repeating again because it's been some time. If there is conduct that is very, very clear on the part of of anyone, including a sitting president, that is absolutely provable beyond all doubt, and it's incredibly serious bad conduct. So for example, if the president is seen murdering someone on television on Fifth Avenue or any other boulevard in New York... I think that a prosecutor would be prepared, including Mueller, would be prepared to test the limits of the argument that a sitting president cannot be prosecuted because of the heinousness of the underlying crime. So I I think the OLC opinion probably will dictate what Mueller does, but if there were some other outrageous, heinous, readily provable crime that someone has engaged in, that could change the decision of the prosecutor. One final thing, uh, like apparently millions of other people, I watched the Jim Comey interview with George Stephanopoulos on ABC last Sunday. I only just got a copy of the book. Haven't read it yet, so I may have thoughts on it in an upcoming episode. Stay tuned. My guest this week is Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist and professor at the Wharton School. He's also a New York Times bestselling author three times over, including as co-author of Option B with Cheryl Sandberg. On top of that, he's got a podcast called Work Life. His books and his work focus on how to cultivate success in an organization and how people can push back against groupthink. So I've known Adam for a while, ran into him a few weeks ago, and we had a fascinating conversation about the troubled institution that I think about the most, our government. He joins me to strategize about how to speak truth to power, what makes a good leader, and what advice he has for people in the West Wing. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone. On April 26th, I'll be recording a live episode of Stay Tuned at the world-famous Apollo Theater in Harlem. And my guest on that show is the amazing Bassam Youssef. Not long ago, Bassam was a heart surgeon in Egypt who decided to become a late-night comedian. One talk show and 40 million weekly viewers later, Bossum became known as the John Stewart of Egypt, and he ultimately had to leave his home after getting on the wrong side of the Egyptian regime. Get tickets from Ticketmaster or apollotheater.com slash calendar. And because I love my podcast listeners most of all, for a limited time, get $20 off each ticket when you enter code PREET20. That's PREET20. Not only is Bossum my guest at the Apollo, but I'm excited and proud to say that he is officially joining the CAFE family, launching a new podcast alongside Stay Tuned. His show is about trying to feel at home in America, something all of us have been thinking about. He'll have conversations with politicians, entertainers, entrepreneurs, and athletes about the immigrant experience and what it means to be an outsider. Check it out, cafe.com slash bossum. That's cafe.com slash B-A-S-S-E-M. Adam Grant, Professor Adam Grant, thanks for joining us on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Preet.
0: So you're a professor at Guilty. at Wharton, at the University of Pennsylvania. And is it is it true that you're the best professor at Wharton?
1: Oh, that would not be my place to judge, <laughs> would it?
0: <laughs> but you have gotten a lot of accolades from students as being a great teacher. So I'm not going to embarrass you with all of that. But it's an important thing, teaching. And I don't think we spend enough time focusing on it. So you are a professor of what?
1: I uh I'm an organizational psychologist so I teach management and leadership and collaboration and organizational behavior.
0: Why were you drawn to psychology?
1: You know, I think like most people it's it's largely because I've had too many awkward interactions in my life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mean you mean when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, growing up, you know, I was I was always the kid who got dropped by my friends and so, you know, at some point I got really curious about why, but I guess as I moved through every part of my life, there was a role that psychology played. So in high school and college, I was a springboard diver, and I was kind of riveted by the challenge of motivating myself to, you know, to, to leap into the air and do somersaults and twists and know I was probably going to crash land, and then I, I had to talk other divers into doing that when I became a coach. And one of the things that was, that was always striking to me as a diver was how many times I would go up in the air and think I'd done a pretty good dive and then pop out of the water and my coach would say, Adam, that was bad.
0: And, and so does that go to, that goes to lack of self-awareness?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're somersaulting and, and twisting, it's really hard to know exactly where you are and, you know, to feel whether your entry is perfectly straight or, you know, whether you're a little bit turned sideways. And I think that's so true in, in our work lives, you know, that, that sadly, uh, most of the time we can't see our performance objectively. And so, you know, I guess in the same way that I would sit down and and watch videotapes of my dives, you know, to see what my coach was seeing, I think we we need other people to hold up a mirror so that we can we can see ourselves more clearly at work.
0: But let's take a step back, and and have you explain to folks, aside from teaching at at Wharton, you go into companies and into other organizations to help them. I, explain what that part of your life is like, and and, yeah. and why you do that
1: so i I guess it it ends up being you know sometimes research, sometimes consulting. So you know when I do a research project there's there's something that I want to understand. And so I might go into a, a company like Google and design an experiment to figure out you know can can we make their jobs more meaningful and motivating, or you know can we we help make their teams more effective? And then you know in a, a consulting project, sometimes i'll I'll get called by uh, ranging from you know the the Gates Foundation to an investment bank. Uh, with the question about, you know, how do we do a better job attracting and retaining people or improving our culture? And so, you know, I often come in as, as sort of a, a, a generalist in the sense that I don't know anything about the industry, but I've spent a lot of time studying the, you know, the common challenges around people and culture. And so we try to bring evidence to the table to, to solve the problem.
0: So are you like a one man McKinsey?
1: Well, I'm, I'm kind of the guy who gets hired after three consultants have been fired. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you're, you're like the cleanup guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, you know what? This has all failed. We might as well try an academic before we give up entirely.
0: And, and why do you do this kind of work? Do you, do you enjoy it in a different way from other work?
1: Yeah, you know, I guess in some ways my job is to fix other people's jobs and, you know, broken organizations. And what I love about it is most of us spend the majority of our waking hours at work, and yet we end up stuck in, you know, in dysfunctional workplaces all the time. And so I feel like if there's something we can do to, you know, to drive change, it's a way to, to have a positive impact on lots of people at once as opposed to, you know, just trying to, to tackle one job at a time.
0: I talk about culture and used to talk about culture in organizations all the time. But I don't have the benefit of a, of a degree in organizational psychology or in anything other than government and the law. Talk about what it means for there to be a good culture at a, at a place. Is that a real thing or is that something, <laughs> you know, boneheads like me just like to say because it sounds nice?
1: No, no, I think it's real. So, you know, when I when I think about culture, I think about repeated patterns of behavior, you know, that that reveal norms and values. Uh, you know, I think one of one of the shorthand ways to capture it is culture is what people do when, when no one's watching.
0: Right. How does a bad culture form in the first place? Who's responsible for it?
1: Well, oftentimes, not surprisingly, cultures turn out to be reflections of you know of the founder or of the the leader who's in charge. So, you know, that that happens in a few ways. One is that, you know, that that founders and leaders very deliberately try to create certain cultures, right? So they 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 create them through the behaviors they reward and the behaviors they punish. Uh but they also create them in ways that they're not aware of. Right. Through, you know, actions that they take that that send clear messages. So, you know, I've I've worked with uh with a whole bunch of organizations uh that have had a similar challenge, which is uh, you walk in and there's this incredibly cutthroat, sort of ruthless set of, of norms where people are constantly undermining each other. And you ask, well, well, how did the organization get this way? And the answer, more often than not, is the CEO basically promoted a bunch of people who maximized individual results and only measured, you know, what does what your personal performance look like? And there was no attention paid whatsoever to, gosh, what's, what's the impact of your performance on other people?
0: On the team, right? I, I remember reading a study once when I was thinking about how to promote people in my own office when I was a U.S. attorney and and what kind of teams made sense. I remember thinking, you know, there are people who are geniuses and who can be amazing at their job, whether it's, you know, making widgets or giving a speech or trying a case. Um, And you think that they're indispensable. And so you can't do anything about them because they're the best person that you have, but they're otherwise toxic. And that you, you have to assess whether or not the entire team will do better without that superstar than it would do with the superstar as opposed to thinking about retaining the superstar because that person is so productive. Does that make any sense?
1: It does. And the reality is that, you know, that even stars are substitutable, right? It's just harder to measure the impact that, you know, that a toxic superstar has. You, do you measure, you know, how people feel differently about their jobs as a function of that person being there? Maybe. But how do you quantify that? And that's something that, you know, that people have a hard time doing. And yet, if you look at the data, uh, it's it's pretty clear: one bad apple can spoil a barrel, but one good egg just does not make a dozen. Right. Well,
0: that's <laughs> like, I'm gonna write that down. You should put that. In, you should put it. In, <laughs> I don't know, on, know what the, that means, that but maybe bowl. you
1: do. So you know, if if we were to break down what what toxic behavior looks like, I've often studied this on an axis of of giving to taking. So, you know, the givers are people who are always asking, you know, what can I do for you? The takers have the opposite stance. It's all about what can you do for me?
0: Is it sometimes possible to make the toxic person on a team better? We've been talking about how, you know, you just, you throw away the bad apple or get rid of the bad apple, the toxic person, even if they're an overperformer individually. But can those people be reformed? Do you have any stories of success when you've gone into a company or an organization and helped? the person who was just taking, 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 and and ruining the overall productivity of a team and making that person see the light and become better?
1: I I don't think that's the the most common reaction. So, you know, oftentimes when when people are, you know, when they've adopted a pattern of taking behavior, uh, it's either because, you know, they've decided that's the way to be effective. And, you know, then you have to work really hard to show them that in fact this behavior is undermining their success or they're just completely unaware of it. And then, you know, you have a real self-awareness challenge there.
0: But what you're saying is kind of, is is mildly depressing. Are you saying that, uh, that organizations of a certain size are always fixable because you can change the teams and you can alter structures and systems, but there are certain people sometimes at places who are not fixable and not redeemable and you got to get rid of them?
1: Well, I think, look, if they're, <laughs> there are different kinds of takers, right? So... You know, there there are narcissists. There are people who have gotten burned too many times, and you know, decided that they're going to have to be you know more selfish in order to get ahead. And then there are psychopaths. <laughs> and I don't think that you know, I don't think you're going to have a lot of luck reforming a psychopath. Right. Let's put it that way. But you know, there, what, there what is if the good...
0: psychopath is the head of the organization?
1: I would leave immediately. But but what but what do you? One.
0: <laughs> but right. But so you get hired, let's say, to take a look at a company. Um, or a government agency, or a White House, for example. <laughs> and let's say the determination is hypothetically that the head of the organization, who is not changeable, because it's a you know it's a family company, or you know they're they're elected, or, or some other uh, reason that they're installed for some uh, permanent period of time going forward. Can can you make those organizations better if the head of the organization is either a narcissist or a psychopath?
1: I think you can. I don't think it's easy, right? So, you know, I I think the the depressing part of this story is that it is much easier to change culture by removing people than it is to change those people's behavior, especially if those are powerful people.
0: What kind of leaders are the best uh, personality type? You know, have you discovered over time that there's a certain kind of uh, prototype personality, introvert, extrovert, confident, uh, self-doubting to some degree, or does it vary there are different kinds of superstar leaders depending on the place. Yeah
1: you know, we we've been studying leadership and personality for decades and it's very rarely true that there's any one trait that defines a great leader. So there are traits that define bad leaders. Uh and I think it's you know it's pretty easy to make the list of you know okay it's it's better to be a giver than a taker. Uh you know as as one example. Uh, it's if you if you look at other dimensions of leadership, it's you know, it's better to be long term focused than short term focused. No surprise there. Uh, it's better to see a lot of potential in your people than you know, to than to assume that they're stupid right. and incompetent. <laughs> you know, I think the one of the, the sort of the big ahas that comes out of my field is you know great leadership is less about the traits you have and it's much more about how you use them, which is you know which is a question of adaptability. And saying, all right, you know, I might want to show my emotions a little bit in one situation because I need other people to be concerned. Right. And I might want to, you know, sort of keep keep them in check in another situation because I need other people to be calm and focused. Yeah, I think there, there's a there's a fun way to look at this that that often sort of uh, that turns out to be revealing. We, we normally talk about optimism and pessimism uh, in this realm. And I, I want to modify that a little bit and say it's really useful to know if you're more of a strategic optimist or a defensive pessimist.
0: I don't know. Which one am I?
1: I don't know. We're going to find out. You ready? Yes, please. So take me back to law school. Yes. And about a week before you had a major exam, what was your (laughs) emotional experience like?
0: Well, I I think I've evolved a lot since law school, but I'll go with the experiment. Uh, A week before the exam, the first major exam, I was probably uh, terrified, nervous, I wanted to be a successful lawyer, and I was thinking ahead to what career I might have. And so I thought this test was incredibly important. Grades, I felt, were more important in law school than in college. So I was a total stress case.
1: Sweet. And now?
0: Well, I don't take, law, well, I don't take legal exams anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I've been- Before a
1: big trial or a big, a big speech or a lecture.
0: So now I feel like I've, um, you know, I've had a career, uh, got fired from only one job. <laughs> and and I no longer think that any particular thing I do uh, is would be ruinous. I feel a lot of stress about uh, new things. So you know, frankly, uh, I'll tell you. You know, I was a lawyer and still am a lawyer, and you know, things that are involved with the law, I feel great comfort in a, in attacking. But I started this podcast a few months ago, and I was very nervous about it, and didn't want it to fail, and it easily could have, I guess. Because it was new and I'd never done it before. So new things like that, I probably yep. had a significant amount of, of stress and worry that you'd fail at, a whole, at an entire enterprise. But if you're talking about legal things, probably you know, given that I've lived a long while and I'm 25 years out of law school, uh, I no longer thought that you know, any particular thing would be my waterloo. And so I, I probably was okay with it. And you know, I developed some confidence in knowing that certain things I could do fairly well. So by the time you know I, I tried you know a number of cases, I was no longer terrified of trying a case. I felt I had that feeling that people say you're supposed to have, you know, the nervousness and and the little bit of anxiety you have before a race, knowing that you're a decent runner.
1: Yep. Good. We can run with this. Okay. So also, by the way, also is... I'm a Libra.
0: All right, but I'm very curious. My parents are gonna be listening to this very carefully.
1: <laughs> oh, perfect. So uh, let's see. If you were a strategic optimist, far on that end of the, the spectrum. Uh, about a week before, you know, that, that big law school exam, you would be envisioning a perfect outcome. And then, you know, that that image would motivate you to study really hard and you'd be excited about the test and then, you know, you'd ace it. Mm-hmm. If you're a defensive pessimist, which I think you're more of, at least, you know, <laughs> by default, about a week beforehand, you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. The other thing I'll say is law is one of the only known professions where defensive pessimists consistently outperform strategic optimists. I, tell me if you agree with this. My my sense of, of really excellent trial lawyers is that, you know, they it may look like they're playing to win, but a huge amount of their preparation was playing not to lose.
0: Correct. No, I, I agree with that. Um, I agree with that. I want to talk about, you know, institutions and how leaders of institutions are supposed to get the best information to make decisions. We spend a lot of time on the show talking about a lot of things and how you know, if you're a secretary of state or you're secretary of homeland security or a president, how you do the right thing and how you make sure that the information flow works in such a way that good decisions are made. And so if you'd, if you'd indulge me in asking a question that I don't mean to be political in any way at all and partisan in any way, but lots of folks you know, who are Republicans or Democrats observe you know, how our country is led and they look at a White House and there's lots of discussion about whether or not you know, John Kelly, uh, the chief of staff, is doing what he's supposed to be doing and is, is discipline being uh, enforced in the White House. And at some periods, people think it is and some people think it's not. And you know, famously, the Clinton White House was not particularly disciplined and Leanna Panetta and I talked about that in the very first episode of this program. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit – again, not about the politics of it, but how you imagine in a, in a, in a universe that is the, the west wing of the White House – how things should be run, what your observations are based on your research and the data, and how people can do a good job serving the country in that place.
1: Well, let, let's let's start with the data. You know, what, one of the, the one of the best ways to guarantee that you make disastrous decisions is to to end up in a, a pattern of groupthink. Of groupthink, where, yes, yeah. Where you know, where are basically you know, every everybody is is essentially marching in the same direction, and nobody ever questions each other. If you look at what actually causes groupthink in, in four decades of, of careful research, uh, one is overconfidence, you know, when, when a group is too convinced that they already know the answer and they have all the right skills and perspectives they need to solve the problem. And then the other is is basically politics, that people are worried about hurting their image mm-hmm. and so they, they don't speak truth to power. So
0: how do you speak truth to power? So, so, t- so, so let's say you were working in the White House, not you, but, you know, someone is working in the White House. Yeah. And you think... That the country's on the wrong course on something, whether it's the border or whether it's Syria, or whether it's trade or anything else, and in good faith you think that the, both the country and the and the president would be better served doing X instead of Y, given the environment that you imagine you know exists and, give, and given your research and your experience, you're sort of a, a mid-level staffer at the White. Let's say you're more you know you're you're a serious advisor. How are you supposed to get your point across in a way that doesn't get you fired, but that gets aired?
1: Well, one of the most overlooked strategies for influence is asking for advice. So, you know, I think normally when we're trying to speak truth to power, we, we think the more forcefully we argue, the more we're going to be heard.
0: No, that's off-putting. You know, as the head of an decision. Totally, when right? someone People came to my office and said, Preet, if you don't, don't do that, that's crazy, that, that's idiotic, that's stupid, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my mind, that was, that's not effective. Even yeah. If it's who, true. who
1: are you to tell me what to do? <laughs> don't don't give me orders. I'm right. in charge here. Right. So, you know, very often asking questions works much better than giving answers.
0: So what's an example of that in this context? So an,
1: an example would be, let's let's say I'm an advisor and, you know, I'm worried that, that, you know, there's a decision that's going in the wrong direction. What I might do is I'd go to John Kelly and I'd say, hey, you know, John, I'd, I'd really love your advice. Actually, I'd probably say, hey, General Kelly, right. I'd really <laughs> love your advice. So, General Kelly, I really love your advice. You know, I, I think we need to be going in a, you know, a, a slightly different direction on trade. You know, I've got a bunch of data to back that up. And I know you're really good at getting heard around here. What what recommendations do you have for me?
0: And then, and then what should John Kelly do in that circumstance? So he gets the request to give advice, but knows that the principle is set on, you know, the principle of the organization, I guess in this case, the president, <laughs> yeah. is bent on doing a particular thing on trade, you know, tariffs in a, of, a, of a particular nature. And, and he thinks that's fine, but he wants you know other points of view to be aired. How does how does John Kelly, in a in a well functioning uh, work environment, get that done?
1: So I think he's he's got three options. The first one is to do the same thing and ask the president for advice. So you know I I might go to to President Trump and say, look, you know, hey, Mister President, one of the things that I've always admired about you is your flexibility. You know that you don't get locked into to one kind of decision. And, you know, I, th- I think there might be a, you know, a direction we ought to consider on trade that other people around the room, you know, might be a little more rigid on. You know, you're, you're so open. How would you get them to be more open?
0: That's based on flattery. Well, flattery plays a big role, I guess, <laughs> in, in institute. I had no idea, I, by the way.
1: Everyone has an ego, right?
0: Um, yes. They, yes, they do.
1: Uh, then, the, you know, the second option would be to try to address it structurally. So, you know, what I would do is I would go into a meeting and say, look, lots of White Houses have been, you know, have been embarrassed and vilified for making decisions that seemed good in the moment, but, you know, with the benefit of history and hindsight have been really bad. And we want to be so much smarter than those people. So, you know, let's let's learn from those mistakes. And one systematic mistake was there wasn't an honest broker. You know, people, this is uh, Roger Porter's research. Right. Uh, You know, that when when everybody who's the head of an agency has direct access to the president, it's really easy to to tilt the president's views. And what you want is a chief of staff or, you know, someone like that who sits above those people and communicates with a filter. uh, Ideally, you know, with with an eye toward what's good for the country as opposed to what's good for my agency or for my political agenda. And so, you know, let's let's create that structure to avoid, you know, what all those idiots have done before. (laughs) <laughs> that, that, yeah, that, that I guess would be a second option. You'll
0: be careful about that one. Right.
1: Very careful. Right. And then the third would just be to think about norms to say, hey, you know, Mr. President, people respect you enough in this White House that, you know, once they know your opinion, they're all going to defer to it. And, you know, I, I know that you you know how important it is to have a good, healthy debate and discussion about different options. So why don't we have the leader speak last? We'll go around the room, we'll get everybody's opinion, and then you can weigh in. And then, you know, you have all the knowledge on the table that you need to make a decision.
0: Yeah, that's something that I learned late in the process. I think I read an article about somebody, and I I noticed it in my own office, that if we were deciding to take a course of action on a case, and it was always a discussion, we sat around the coffee table in my office, uh, and if I made known the way i was leaning but i was totally open minded but i had to lean in a particular direction because everybody you know, else leans too they start leaning or they or they don't make the argument in the, in the way that they might have made it and i saw this you know a couple of times and it was very sort of jarring to me cuz you know i'm a pretty easygoing <laughs> guy but institutionally you know you're still the person in charge and i would see a shift in in the expressions of people and i would see they wouldn't advocate for the contrary view quite as sharply as they might have otherwise because people I mean, one time is okay to be on the other side of what the boss wants to do. Second time is not great. But nobody wants to be on the wrong side of the ultimate decision three, four, five times because then they think their advice is going to be, you know, uh, not respected because they always get it wrong when that was not at all what I was trying to get across or the culture I was trying to create. And then you learn over time to keep your mouth shut totally and hear from other people first. But it took took (laughs) me several years to learn that.
1: (laughs) It's a huge problem. And, you know, I think that I have watched so many leaders, you know, struggle with this in the sense that they think they're communicating openness and they don't realize that the more power you gain, the more worried everyone else is about, you know, about challenging you, criticizing you, disappointing you, or just, you know, kind of looking like they're not on the same page as you. So
0: so tell me, Adam, if I'm in a meeting and I want to, you know, and everyone's sort of agreeing that we should do A versus B... But I want to have the benefit of uh, the argument for the other side. You know what I would do sometimes is I would call on someone and I would say, "Why don't you make the case to do the opposite? Why is that not Why is that not effective?"
1: Well, look, I, I think that almost every leader I know says, "All right, you know, we we got to get the devil's advocate in here," and it's a great idea with one tiny wrinkle. It doesn't work. Uh, there's a psychologist at Berkeley, Charlon Nemeth, who has spent her whole career studying this. And what she finds is that devil's advocates rarely convince anyone of anything. And more often, they actually backfire and they leave the group more convinced of the majority preference or where the consensus already was. And that, that happens for two reasons that we know of. One is that they don't argue forcefully enough.
0: Their heart's not in it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they don't have enough time to prepare usually as well. And then the other side of it is that the rest of the room knows that they're just playing a role, and so they don't take it seriously enough. It's like, hey, we checked that box. Now we can go right back to what we already wanted to do.
0: Okay, so how do you solve that, how do you solve that, that problem? How do you get the devil's advocate position despite so the, 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 the problem? The solution
1: that's, that's easy in theory but hard in practice is to say, instead of assigning a devil's advocate, you want to unearth a devil's advocate. Find the genuine dissenter who actually holds a different viewpoint and give that person a voice and invite them into the conversation. And then when you hear that person's voice, you are significantly more likely to make a good decision and also to reach, reach a creative solution to the problem that hasn't yet been considered.
0: In that regard, then, it would seem to me, just looking from the outside as a private citizen, that the White the White House seems to have you know, genuine, genuine contrarian thinkers. And there are schools of thought that develop, right? Some people want to do X on trade. Some people want to do Y. Some people want to... Bomb Syria. Some people want to wait. So, it, should we be, you know, happy that there are differences of opinion, strongly held, and likely not, you know, just made up, but but true contrarians in the decision making process, so that you know whether you like the decision or not, depending on where you think about where, what you think about things in the in as a citizen, that there's meaningful debate going on in the White House.
1: Yeah, we should be happy. But I think the the open question, at least for me, which maybe you can weigh in on, is. How much are those contrarian opinions being heard? Right. And, you know, how often are people biting their tongues?
0: So let me let me, put, let me put it this way. Everything that you study deals with rationality and is backed up by data. And there are environments where, you know, some things are not going well, and that's why you get brought in. And then there are environments, not just people, but there are environments that are toxic. And everything that I read about this White House, and this may have been true of other White Houses, too, of, of the other party... But everything you read about this White House is that it's toxic and that people are afraid of being fired at any moment or upsetting the president um, or being on the wrong side of an issue. Uh, And there's worries about leaks and that that advice, honest advice being given is immediately going to find its way into the Washington Post or the New York Times. How do you deal with an environment and what's your advice to people in an environment that is so messed up by all reports?
1: Well, if if that's what it's like, I say good luck. (laughs) <laughs> That's, you can't I mean, say this, that. That's not what you're supposed to say. <laughs> no, I mean, look.
0: This, this is our country. This is, not not is our easy. country, Adam.
1: This is not easy. Uh, you know, look. If if I if I had a solution, I would uh, I would certainly be offering it. Let's 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 start with this. So let let's say you know there's there's a sense that you know there are some senior people who are defensive, and this would not be the first White House where that would be the case, right? Right. So you could look at that as a, as a fixed personality trait, and then you're basically stuck with it. Or you could say, look, actually what personality really is is a set of tendencies. And, you know, we, we all have kind of a baseline that we orbit around, but we fluctuate from day to day. And they're, you know, even the most defensive person you know, there are moments when they're a little bit more open. Mm-hmm. And your job is to observe the fluctuations and figure out what the patterns are.
0: So a little bit of the fault if i may say lies in the strategies that are being utilized by the people around the president right i mean the president look he's the president people have to get over it and you know some people hope he goes and some people hope he gets reelected um, but he's the president and if there are people of good faith in that environment you take him as he comes and he's not so changeable because he's lived a long life and he's been successful being the way he is yeah uh, but the people around him as you say have to find their opportunities to steer the decision making in a particular direction. And so I guess I guess my next question is, what are the personality traits of of the people you want around a president like that?
1: I mean the actually, the, my favorite experiment on this showed that if you just say nineteen words before criticizing someone, they become about forty percent more open to to the negative feedback. and the the words are roughly, I'm giving you these comments because I have high expectations of you and I'm confident you can reach them.
0: Right. So you're saying John Kelly, in trying to suggest an alternative course on something, should should say to the president, I believe in you, Mr. President, I believe in the course you're setting for the country, and I have absolute faith that we're doing the right thing overall, but you know what? We shouldn't bomb Syria quite yet, and you think that has a greater likelihood of success?
1: I think it's worth a try. I would probably phrase it a little bit differently. I'd probably articulate it by saying, you know, Mr. President, uh, you know you've you have a track record of making some really creative decisions, and you know you've you've taken bold steps where other people were afraid to act, and I think that's a big factor behind your success. There are also times when you know that that can be the wrong move, right? Uh, you know, Trump stakes, and so you know let's let's take a step back and figure out is this decision more like one of the good ones or one of the bad
0: ones? Right. I mean, the, the problem here, it seems to me, uh, that's that's hard to get around is that you have a guy who became president of the United States who was told repeatedly, you can't win if you act the way you do, if you tweet the way you do, if you treat people the way you do, and they were all wrong and he won. And so, you know, he's lived a long life uh, and he got to where he got by being the way he is. And so when rational, reasonable people, generals or otherwise or subject matter experts tell him things that he doesn't like and say, you can't do X or Y he thinks to himself, and it's not, it's not crazy to me what his mental process must be. He thinks to himself, You're just like those other people who told me not to do this, yeah. and you were all wrong. And so I know better, and I'm the president, and so go to hell.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I react, think
0: react to that because it's not. Well,
1: there are a couple of ways that that resonates. The first one is that that's actually how learning works, right? So if you go all the way back to, to Pavlovian conditioning, Uh, You know, remember Pavlov training his dogs to salivate at the sound of a bell? We're all we're all susceptible to classical conditioning. So if you know, if the president repeatedly is told you're not going to win or you are wrong and he rejects that that advice or viewpoint and then ends up learning that he's correct over and over again, pretty soon he's conditioned to believe that whenever somebody says this is a bad idea, it's actually a good idea.
0: Right. So how do you fix that?
1: Actually, before we talk about how to fix it, there's, there's another piece of it, which is uh, our brains end up filtering information, you know, kind of censoring the bad stuff the same way that a dictator would censor the press. And so over time, right, You what you can do is you end up in a confirmation bias mode of remembering the times when people said you were wrong and you were right and forgetting the times when they said you were wrong and you were actually wrong.
0: Oh, I totally do that. We all do that. Are people changeable? I, I just took for granted this idea that if you're a seventy something year old who got to where you got as the president, that you you know the people around you have to adapt to that person. Have you seen experiences in your life where people actually are able to be changed, whether it's at the head of a company or the or the head of the government?
1: Yeah, I think there are few and far between, right? So we change relative to our baseline, but there you know there are some pretty pretty radical examples of people changing in pretty radical ways. So. One of the ones uh, that comes to mind from history is a guy named uh, named Alfred, who one day woke up and saw his own obituary in the newspaper. and it said, "The merchant of death is dead." Uh, so he made dynamite, and his obituary mm-hmm. said they called him the Merchant of death." Uh-huh. and he he had originally made it to try to make you know mining more efficient and maybe a little safer. and you know it had, of course, this this destructive effect. In a lot of ways. And I, I think it was his brother who had died. And the newspaper mixed him up. And it got printed uh, across, you know, across, a, I think, a whole country. Maybe even across an ocean. And so he had a chance to, to look at his legacy. And he didn't like what he saw. And so uh, Alfred devoted the rest of his life to trying to do good. Uh, his last name was Nobel. He created the Nobel Prizes. Oh, that guy. Yeah, that guy. You know, too often we're, we're looking at our lives through a microscope. And what we actually need is a wide-angle lens where we can zoom out and ask, you know, what is my legacy? What is the impact of this behavior on my reputation? And, you know, sometimes with the right information, people do not like the person that's staring them in the mirror, and they decide they want to change. Right.
0: You travel far and wide. You talk to a lot of people. Um, from time to time, you talk to me. What are, what are some ideas or what's an idea that has uh, you excited for the future and that might make people's lives better?
1: <laughs> oh there's so many i'll tell you I'll tell you one I'm excited about right now that's relevant to our conversation okay so uh there there's some really cool research that's been done on American companies and also Chinese companies looking at the most effective leaders and I was thrilled to see that if you look at narcissistic leaders versus humble leaders, the humble leaders are more effective uh, they're rated as better, their employees are more productive and innovative as well and you know when you think about what what a humble leader brings to the table uh it's you know willing to to admit when you're wrong you know trying to learn from your mistakes always wanting to improve that's good for you as a leader and it's also motivating and contagious to your people who tend to adopt some of those qualities so that that that's all good news there's also um the the other was that
0: i'm sorry was that surprising like you you sound very elated. Yeah, it was surprising that, that was a result. Why why would that be
1: so surprising? It was surprising because you know we we tend to favor narcissists. If you look at you know who who becomes a CEO and you compare multiple candidates, the more narcissistic candidate usually gets the job, and we see it in elections too. The relatively higher score on narcissism in an election is more likely to get the votes.
0: Does narcissism bear any relationship to what people call charisma or not?
1: Yeah, it can. So if you look at uh, studies of American presidents throughout history, the narcissists do tend to be more charismatic.
0: But uh, is charisma overrated as a quality in leadership?
1: That, I mean, that, there are very few things as a social scientist that I would say for sure, but that's a for sure.
0: So why are we so focused on charisma? Because people, I guess the, the storybook says you have a charismatic leader in civil rights or in industry or, or something else, or in politics, and they inspire people through their charisma and charm and oratory and passion, and so people follow them. Yeah. And that's how you get something done. Uh, is that overstated?
1: Well, I think, look, that that is, you just beautifully summarized what we know about the benefits of charisma, which is, it's inspiring. People are more willing to follow you, and they're more motivated to follow you, but <laughs> good leadership is about more than just inspiration. Right, it's, you have to execute. Right. Yeah, it's about strategy. It's about execution. It's about good decision making. It's about resolving conflicts, and very often charisma becomes a crutch. That when leaders are highly charismatic, they're actually less likely to develop good operational skills, and you know really focus on the details. Mm-hmm. And so it 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 sort of impedes their development, which is which is a problem if you have to work directly with these people.
0: Right. Well, there's also in politics. I think there's a danger of charisma because there's a there's a sometimes a fine line between uh, tremendous charisma and demagoguery and so people can be led and can be manipulated by the charismatic leader or the cult of personality which is something we always have to be worried about and maybe it's different in business but
1: no it's not actually there's uh, there's research on two kinds of charisma so there's there's socialized charisma which is about hey i'm going to get you inspired about the mission of this organization and then there's personalized charisma, which is I'm going to get you inspired to be loyal to me. And the, right. for, the former is powerful and the latter is incredibly dangerous.
0: Professor, I could talk to you for many more hours. I'd, like to, I'd love to have you back because uh, I need a lot more examination <laughs> of myself by someone as uh, smart. Uh, and I will say appropriately charismatic as you. Really a pleasure having you on the show. Delighted
1: so to be here, Preet. Thanks for having me. So, this
0: is largely a show about the American political and legal system, and rightly so. And there's a lot of discord we talk about and a lot of things people think are going wrong in the country. But while we're focusing on these topics, the rest of the world outside of politics and the law keeps moving. I saw something this week that made me optimistic, and it has to do with Ebola. Now, ordinarily, you think about Ebola, it doesn't make you hopeful. The Ebola virus, as you know, is a deadly disease that spreads through human contact and bodily fluids. It causes uh, terrible fevers that take over the cells in your body, shuts down your immune system. In August 2014, given the devastating effects in West Africa, the World Health Organization declared the epidemic an international health emergency. And it has devastated communities and families with reports that over 11,000 people have died from Ebola Since that crisis, a few years ago, even after most of America seemed to forget it, doctors and scientists have been hard at work, and so something new is on the horizon. There's a vaccine which reportedly seems to provide protection against the Ebola virus for two years after the injection. While we don't know how long the vaccine could last or what the long-term effects are, researchers are, for the first time, pretty optimistic. It's a one-time shot, which would be useful for both long-term safety and emergency responses. And while it's too early to call this a success it's obviously a step in the right direction. And so while we all talk about what's going on in Washington and the dangers to our democracy and whether or not we're going to get along as a country and we can become less polarized, the march of science and medicine continues and there's cause for hope, at least with respect to the Ebola virus. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, organizational psychologist, and best-selling author, Adam Grant. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at Cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Barraro. Stay tuned.